0: Glad to be with you. I think you're with me. Good morning, church. Good morning. Hey. All right. Good. I just want to make sure this wasn't just one-way thing. Um, we have been uh, been working through a series called uh, Square One, and just asking asking the question like there are so many different things that we could choose to um, to start our faith and establish our faith at the beginning of the school year. Um, what could we peel back maybe some things we've picked up along the way and get back to the basics. What are the fundamentals? What are the essential things that we ought to be building our faith on? And so that's just kind of been the the arc of this series. And um, I I neglected to gather a picture for you. So I'm going to try and describe one. But it's a really easy picture for you to imagine. So what I'd like for you to do is I'd like for you to picture an egg. Okay? I'd like for you to break the egg. And the yolk stayed together, right? So now you're looking into a skillet with an egg in the middle of it, okay? And so, what do we see? We see a yolk, right? We see a white, and we see a skillet, right? So, real simple picture. I didn't have to put it on the screen for you, nothing. You guys are just that brilliant. <clears throat> you got some butter, well, that's, that's... You're a better cook than me. Um, so, I want to describe something for you because we've got uh, some some hard things to kind of to chew on. So I am uh, probably the worst student that I know. I never ever ever did my homework. My mom can attest to this. And I just I just barely got through school. School was not my thing. And uh, and I have come to now understand uh, that the egg is a good illustration of my misunderstanding of what education is. So. If, if the yolk of the egg are things that I know, I thought the purpose of education was to grow that yolk. I thought the purpose of education was for me to, to expand and to grow the, the yolk of things that I know about. Um, and what I have come to understand is that as you grow that yolk, as you increase the size of the things that you know, you increase also the, the size of the white. And the wide is not the things that we know, but the things that we know we don't know, okay? So as you grow the knowledge that you have, you also grow in knowledge of things that you know that you don't know about, right? And, and I think that that's actually kind of the purpose of education. Um, is that you're not just supposed to learn more things, but you're supposed to become aware that there are more things that are related to the things that you know about that you know that you don't know about, but that are interacting with the things that you do know about, even if you're not quite sure how it all plays out. I think that's actually the purpose of education. I was disappointed. I'm like, why isn't that, like this yoke isn't getting that much bigger, but this white thing is just going out of control. There are just so many things that I know now that I den- that I don't know that previously I didn't know that I didn't know which is the skillet. The skillet is everything else. And it's the stove, and it's the fire, and it's the kitchen, and it's the house, and it's the world. So so we've got an egg that is, you know, trying to increase what we know by increasing the things we know that we don't know, but also... If we miss this part, and I think maybe academic world sometimes misses this component, is that as we as we get a picture of what we know and what we know we don't know, we should also have a dose of humility to understand that there is a great, big world outside of that of things that we don't know, that we don't know, but it's all in God's hands. right? So that's that's, I mean, I didn't I didn't even have that in my notes, but as I was thinking through our conversation this morning, um, I was trying to think, how can we start? Um, because we've got some, we're uh, we're kind of going to jump in the middle of something here, and it's going to be hard to chew on. And so I would like for us to to hang together as we try to chew on. I mean, not that eggs are difficult to chew on, but like as as the material that we're talking about is difficult to chew on, um, let's hang together. And maybe by the end of it, we can not only grow or, or wrestle with the things that we think we know, we can wrestle with them in the context of the things we know we don't know, and with a dose of humility to know that we don't know what we don't know right? Okay, so we got, we got some work to do together this morning. I think we're going to be able to hang. You guys are awake. You've had your coffee. Thank you, Dignity Roasters. Um, let's begin uh, with prayer. Uh, it's our habit together in Neighborhood Church to pray, to begin the week off praying uh, in the way that Jesus modeled for us to pray. And so we call this the Disciples' Prayer. You probably learned it as the Lord's Prayer. But uh, Jesus, uh, when the disciples say, hey, how should we pray? He says, this is how you should do it. So if we're going to follow him when we get together, let's start off our week like this, okay? So I'd invite you to pray with me. If you'd like to pray out loud, the words are there on the screen. Um, But at the very least, I'd invite you to let's bow our hearts together and let's pray. I'd I'd like to invite you to turn with me to the letter of Ephesians in your Bibles. It's on page 217. If you'd like to use these blue Bibles, they'll either be on a chair in front of you or uh, or tucked underneath or right there. So it's on page 217 in in the blue Bibles. I don't know if you brought your own Bible. I don't know how to help you. Um, But Ephesians chapter 2. And uh, we're going to begin together by reading Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Now, as we do that, let me point out uh, a couple of things. One is we're reading somebody else's mail. This is a letter that was written by Paul to a group of Christians that live in a city called Ephesus a a couple thousand years ago. So we're reading somebody else's mail, and we're reading in chapter 2. So we're jumping into the middle of an idea. So I'm going to read verses 1 through 10 together, and it's going to be a little bit disorienting. One, because it's not written to us. It's written for us. Um, And and two, because we're jumping in the middle of an idea. So hang with me. We're going to kind of break these things apart, but I want to give us us, uh, an overview before we start to zoom in on the thing. So Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. And you were dead So we'll we'll pause there. That's our text for the day. And there's a couple of big ideas, um, and there's a couple of of words in there. I I put this up on the board. I don't expect you to really be able to read it, but I want to show you what I'm doing. Um, This is an exercise that uh, another pastor introduced to me that I have found helpful, and I'm taking the opportunity in this series to try and pass it on to you. Where sometimes when we open a big block of scripture like this, because there are just so many words in there, we can lose track of the thought. And so the the, the exercise is called irreducible minimum. And what we do is we take the text and we underline the words that the, the least amount of words that we possibly can and still get the same idea. So this isn't because not all the words are important. This isn't because we're not going to deal with all the words. But as a place to start, sometimes it can be helpful to go through and underline what are, what are the essential like action words that make the sentence uh, go together and start from that point. So as I worked through it this week, uh, these are the words that I underlined and I just went through and underlined what are the, what are the words that are, that are making the sentence, and how can I underline the least amount of them and still make the same ideas come together, okay? So this is not, it's not a perfect science. This isn't the only way to study your Bible, but this is an exercise that sometimes can be helpful. Um, and then when you do that, you can go from this text of 10 verses with all of these words and, and reduce it down to, to a couple of sentences. And here is my uh, recommendation for an irreducible minimum for Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10 this week. It could be slightly different week over week. But... You were dead like mankind. But God made us alive so that he might show his grace. This is the gift. We are his for good works. That's a little bit easier to manage. Like if I, if I give you all 10 of those verses, like I don't even really know what's going on. I'm kind of swimming in all of these words and there's so many theological words that are in there. I'm not sure. Like if I just go through and I underline, what are the action words that are kind of making up the, the backbone of this paragraph? What are, what are these action words? You were dead like mankind, but God made us alive so that he might show his grace. This is the gift. We are his for good works. Now, we can debate about whether we should have added more words or less words. Or, but this is just kind of a, a, a place to get us started. So, from, the, from, from a, a starting point, the, the idea that Paul is trying to communicate to these Christians thousands of years ago in the city of Ephesus is, Hey, you were dead, but God made us alive so he might show his grace. This is the gift and we are his for good works. So that's, I can kind of wrap my head around that a little bit, right? That's, and I think that's a good place to start. And as we look at this sentence, uh, or this smaller paragraph, we can see kind of three movements of thought, right? So the first thought is, you were dead like mankind. Okay, that's going to be verses 1 through 3. You were dead like mankind. Um, then in 4 through 7, but God made us alive so he might show his grace. It's kind of a second movement, a little bit of a different idea, but continuing. And the third movement is, this is the gift. We are his for good works. And I don't know if this is the gift should go in the middle or towards the end. Like, I don't know. It's kind of... Anyway. That's a starting point. Just a starting point. Okay? So let's go back to, uh, to the whole text. Uh, you were, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. So... Remember, this is not our mail. We're reading somebody else's mail. This is the, uh, Paul, a church planter who had started this church, is writing to uh, believers in the city of Ephesus after a couple of years. He's been away from them for a couple of years, and now he's writing a letter uh, and kind of communicating a bunch of different things. Um, But he's writing to people who have already committed their lives to Christ. They're already trusting him for salvation. So when he writes to them, he uses the past tense verbs. You were dead in trespasses and sins. And as he goes on, like mankind, he goes on and describes uh, the natural state of humanity apart from Christ. And and this is where uh, we might be a little bit challenged. Uh, You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. What Paul says here, and he says it in the past tense for those who are following Jesus, but he says as a description of what humanity's base state is, that we are enemies of God, that we serve the prince of the power of the air, we serve God's enemy, and we only want to satisfy our own fleshly desires. That's our natural state. So apart from Jesus, that's just kind of how we're born. Um, our defaults. So if you if you get a new phone, right, there's a bunch of default settings on it, and you'll spend the rest of your life trying to get the defaults to reset to where you you want the phone to do what you want it to do, and then you'll drop it in the toilet and then you, hey, you get a new phone again and you've got new defaults. It's like, I just got these where I wanted them. And I used to, I used to, this is, let me just a minute. I used to like have Google back up, even my default settings. So I could like copy my whole phone over to a new phone. It was amazing. But then one time I got my child, I won't blame them, but I'll blame them. My child locked me out of my phone. I couldn't log in and I couldn't do the copy. And I had to go back to the defaults again, the factory. Oh my God. It was so frustrating. Anyway, our defaults, we're born with a set of defaults, and some of them are personality types. Some of them you actually uh, get get worked in from your family. Um, Some of them are genetic. We're born with a set of defaults, but our defaults, as we're born into the world, are more corrupt than we may have previously thought. He says, in fact, our defaults are dead. You're like, okay, I'm trying to think and like, I look back, like, there's a point where I chose to follow Jesus, and, like, before that, like, yeah, life was bad, but I wasn't dead, was I? And it's, it's, it's challenging to be like, okay, well, all right, so I've got a neighbor, and, and, and they think like me. Like, they've got, they keep their yard like me. They, uh, they, like, we've got some of the same hobbies. We've got the same kind of work. Like, this, and I go to church on Sunday, and I'm, I'm trying to follow Jesus, and they're not really doing that. Like, Sunday morning, they go grocery shopping like the rest of humanity, and, and, and they're just kind of doing their thing. But, like, they're Republican like me. They think like me about political things. Like, we're not that different. And yet, Paul says, if they're not following Jesus, they're dead, and you're alive. And there's, there's a tension there. And I, I want you to feel it. Because by the end of this, I'm, we're going to resolve it, and hopefully we're going to be inspired to move forward. But like, let's sit there for a minute and feel that tension. But Paul is saying the defaults of, of, of everybody who's born is, is dead. Whether, whether we think they're good people or not. Uh, I wrote down, there are people who though good by my standards, are at war with God when he looks at their heart. They're animated, like like the Walking Dead, they're animated, but they don't have life. Following the prince of the power of the air, um, oh man, there's so many layers to this onion that we could kind of unpack uh, the prince of the power of the air. Like, what are we talking about? Like, is that is that an enemy? Like, what do you mean, power of the air? I don't quite understand. And then I go back into the flood because they're really like the text is really clear that the point of the flood was to wipe out everything with the breath of Gnos- breath of air in its lungs. Like, there was something about the prince of the power of the air and the corruption in the flood overcame the thing. And there's a lot that we could kind of unpack that I'm trying to kind of skirt around. But the but but the the point remains that like the natural state of humanity apart from Christ is death. We can probably think of people that we think would be like counterexamples. Like, no, how could you say that that person, like, yeah, they follow this other thing, but they're genuine and they're a good person and they do good work, blah, blah, blah. And I get that. Like, I understand that there's counterpoints, but I'm saying like, as God sees it, they're dead. And I don't have those glasses. I can't see, like, I don't know that I want to, Because I suspect that there might be some churches we'd walk into that would that would look not great if we had glasses to see spiritual states. But I don't ever know. Like I don't I don't know if you know this, but just when you get ordained, like when you become a preacher, they don't give you goggles to know whether these people are saved or those people are following Jesus or those people aren't. Like I don't know any more than you do. And I wish I did, but it, like, I don't know, sometimes we think like, oh, well, the pastor surely knows, and I, I really don't, and I can remember one morning I was teaching at the Bible college, so these are, these are kids that have like taken nine months of their life to just study the Bible and figure out God's calling for their lives, like they're really spiritual, they study their Bible, literally is their full-time job to study the Bible, and I'm, I'm going along teaching, and I don't remember what the point was, I was like, I don't know who of you is saved. All of y'all could be, could be rejecting Jesus and met war with God in your heart. I don't know that. And they're like, what? Me? The Bible college student? I'm like, yeah, I don't know. It doesn't matter how good we clean up on the outside. It's what's going on in here. And I don't know that. I can't answer that for you. Like as I can journey together with you. We can, we can lean on one another, and we can come to know but even the person I'm closest with, with Jesse, I can't know for sure what, what God is doing in her heart. Like, it's just a function of reality. But if we, we come to terms and we trust God when he says your default is dead, then we probably ought to pay attention to what else he might have to say about that. Um, and let me say, too, that only God knows your heart. Like, this is actually a thing that gets repeated regularly through scripture. Um, They talk about it in 1 Samuel 16 when they're talking about, you know, King David being anointed. Don't look on the outside. God knows the heart, so pick the one God says. And Proverbs 21 and verse 2 says the same thing, like God only knows the heart. We read together from Jeremiah 17 that the heart is wicked, but God judges based upon what's going on in your heart. Um, Acts 15, it shows up again. Romans 8. So from uh, Hebrew scriptures to Christian scriptures, old to new, like it's all through there. Repeated phrases: God is the only one who knows your heart, including maybe even me. Some days, like only God knows what is going on in me. Because there's some days where I'm like, God, I think I am dead. Like I think I think you were right about that. I don't know that you fixed this problem yet because this feels like a weight that I'm carrying. He's like, No, 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 no. Like I'm giving you life. I'm I'm pouring something in here. Like you're wrestling with that. Is, is a sign of life, not a sign of death. So, um, But only God knows our heart. So how do we think about our life before Jesus? Like, just on the, on, the, on the surface, how do we think about our life before Jesus? And if you haven't, like, you're just examining Jesus, you're trying to figure out who this guy is and all that, like, great, like, I'd encourage you to continue to ask those questions. Um, and it may be offensive to hear me say, like, if you're not submitting your life to Jesus, then you're spiritually dead, but... I didn't make it up. Like I'm just reading what it said. So, I mean, you can kill the messenger, I guess, if that'll make you feel better. Um, so how do we think about our life before Jesus, and do we see Jesus as essential for true life? Like, if, if we're talking about quality of life, do we see Jesus as essential to true life? I'm thinking about people that are literally starting over from nothing this weekend literally from square one. No house. You know, whatever was in their bank account, they can't find a bank to get it out of. Like, what do do I do? Where do I go? How do I make it? I'm like, what's essential? Food, water, like those things come to mind. But do we see Jesus as essential for true life? I wonder about, like if the church building got wiped off the map tomorrow and all of our homes... Like, would we still see value in gathering together as a church to sing? We're not counted worthy uh, to suffer that test this weekend, Uh, but it could have been us. I hope our takeaway this morning is that Jesus is our only source for true life and purpose. teenagers like it when I say, you super, you really got to pay attention to the butts in the Bible. Mm -hmm. They're all asleep in the back right now, but if they were paying attention, they would chuckle. (laughs) You really got to pay attention to the butts in the Bible. Verse 4, but God. You've got all this bad news, you've got all this death, you've got all this condemnation, you've got uh, this, this following the prince of the power of the air, like all this bad news, but... That's a big but. You better pay attention. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. We were enemy combatants. We were not just neutral Sweden in the war between God and and the powers of the world. We were enemy combatants. And he crossed battle lines and laid his own life down to build a bridge to bring us back into living relationship with him. Not because we were good. Not because we cleaned ourselves up. Not because we took a shower on Sunday morning and made it to church on time. He did that because of his great love for us that while we were fighting against him, he would lay his own life down. While we were nailing him to the cross, he would say, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. It's not that any of us has ever earned God's kindness to us. But out of his character, that's his disposition. Jesus says, I, can't, I didn't come to condemn the world. I came to forgive. And I want to forgive. I want to give life. But you're still fighting against me on it. Would you just lay it down? It's actually, it's actually not worth that much to you anyway. Unless I get a hold of it. Out of his wealth of mercy and motivated by his great love, God makes us alive by his grace. There are no prerequisites. Do you know about prerequisites? I'm going to tell you about prerequisites because I did not know. I'm not, I'm not real smart. I've already kind of talked to you about my education journey. One of the things that I learned on my education journey is about prerequisites. So if you look at a college uh, course, they'll give you every class you have to take for the next four years, like on day one. You can see that. It's incredible. I didn't know that this could exist. I'm, I was a musician. I didn't know we planned much beyond verse two. So they can, they can lay out for you like all of the classes you have to take in order to get this degree at the end, which is incredible. I thought that was great. And so as I went through and I started signing up, for the classes, I'm like, I wanna sign up for the ones that I think are interesting. Because of course, you sign up for the classes that you think are interesting, and I guess we'll get to the other ones later. But what I did not know about was prerequisites. I also did not know that the number of the course corresponds with the difficulty. And nobody told me this. I had to learn this by example. So as as, as a sophomore in college, I'm sitting in four, like there's year one, year two, year three, year four, okay, all right, four years of school. 100-level classes, 200-level classes, 300-level classes, 400-level I did not know that those corresponded. I, I know. I'm sorry. Numbers don't work for me in my head the right way. But, like, if you got a 100-level class, you take that before a 200-level class? So you guys are looking at me like I'm an idiot. Because I am. I didn't understand. So I'm supposed to be in 200-level. I'm sitting in 400-level classes going, they're saying read 200 pages this week. I haven't read 200 pages in a semester before. What do you mean? You're just supposed to get harder as you go. I didn't know that. And I don't know how I made it through those classes with passing grades. God still does miracles. But there were prerequisites to those things that I didn't know about. I should have done different work. It made, you know, my senior year really easy. But it made my sophomore year awful. I thought I was going to die. But there are no prerequisites to God's grace. There's times where we'll hear God say, hey, I love you. I care about you. I want to give you true life. And we go, yeah, but like, look at the things that are going on here. Like, don't you know how I interacted with, with that person? I did not represent a, a Christian way there. Don't you know what I was doing? Don't you know what I was thinking? Like if you're the only one who can seize my heart, then you know how sick I am in here. Don't you dare come in here with that forgiveness. Don't you dare try to wash me clean. You're gonna need some kind of Clorox or something because I'm nasty. And we'll look at God and say, you can't do it. And He'll look at you and say, There's no prerequisite. You have no idea how sick you are. You were walking around thinking that you were living the good life and you weren't completely dead. I just wanna give you life. There's no prerequisite. There's no grading. Because the need is the same. Doesn't matter what family you were born into. Doesn't matter what you've managed to earn in your lifetime. The need is the same. And the solution is the same. We are more corrupt than we ever imagined, but we are loved beyond all imagination. Not because we're good. Not really that great. But just because that's who God is. Are we trusting Jesus to give us life? For some of us, we're like, no, I'm not. And I need to do that. And that might be the first time that you've made that decision. I need to trust Jesus to give me life. In which case, do that. There aren't any magic words there's no, no special incantation. Just say, hey, Jesus, I don't get it. I don't understand how it all works out, but I know I need to trust you to fix what I can't fix. Start there. And for those of us who've been walking with Jesus for a while, we're like, yeah, yeah, I know. Like, I should be trusting Jesus. Like, it's kind of it's stale. As soon as I saw Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, I knew we were going to get a gospel presentation. I knew where you were coming from, Mike. I understand. Uh, is your daily bread stale? Then let me point you towards something else. Why? Why? Why is he doing this? Why is he saving us? Why is he by grace showering us with forgiveness when we really deserve the death that we wanted to begin with? It says it in verse 7, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. So if you are like, I need to trust Jesus, then please do that. I'm going to say a couple of things to some people to try to blow their minds, and then we'll come back to the simple stuff, okay? <clears> okay. <throat> So that in the coming ages, why is Jesus saving us? Because he has a point to prove to somebody other than you. And it actually has nothing to do with you. What God is doing in all of creation, in all of human history, actually has very little to do with humanity. We are the objects and the recipients of his grace and his love and his mercy, but that's not the point of what he's trying to do in the coming ages, not even for today. For something that he's doing in the future, he's trying to show something else in creation, the work that he would do because of his character, because of his love towards people that don't deserve it. He's trying to prove a point to somebody else. God's plan is bigger than the world we see now. He is making a point about his character for ages beyond our complete comprehension. I can give you uh, some some rough outlines of what those ages are that he's talking about and who it is that he's going to prove his character to. I don't know all the details, but I know it's beyond my comprehension. And his interaction with us is helpful to us, but is not his primary, primary objective. He is telling the story of his character through his interaction in history. Do you know there was an angel one time who looked at God and said, you know what, you're not really that great. I think I could probably do your job better. And you know what God did? He looked at that angel and said, you don't know who I am. You, you don't get it. You don't, you don't know what it is to be... Me, you don't know what it is to be Yahweh, the God who is, the God who was, the God who will be. You don't understand my character. Let me show you who I am. And he knelt down in the dirt and made Adam and Eve. The angel challenged him. He says, "You don't get it." The angel said, "I could be God." And he says, "No, you can't. Because you think being God is about power, and I'm going to show you that unlimited power without relationship is dead." Let me show you love that you cannot comprehend. And he makes Adam and Eve and starts the story. Has nothing to do with us. We get all the benefits, but it's not about us. So if your daily bread is stale, zoom out a little bit. And take a look at what God's doing in the rest of creation. Because, as as Pastor Ryan has already proclaimed to us, God picked you to be in Christ for his Purpose. it's what he is doing in the world it's not just for humanity it's for all of creation Romans 8 uh, verses 18 through 22 he says uh, what's going on in the world is kind of terrible but it's not as bad as it as it's as it's not as bad as it is going to be good in the end for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us for creation waits in eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God for we know that the whole creation has has been groaning together in pains of childbirth until now, waiting for our redemption. All of creation is looking at us to understand who God is. And God's greatest expression of his love is that he would cross enemy lines to give life to those who are fighting against him. Jesus is our only source for true life and purpose. Purpose. What do you mean, purpose? For, verse 8, for, by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. This is the gift. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in him. This is not a result of works. This is not a result of works. It's not a result of works. I don't know if you're familiar with the story, um, but when Jesus is crucified, There are two thieves on either side of him, and they both start out making fun of him, but then one of them is like, hey, maybe this isn't a good idea. Like, maybe I should, like, he was a a righteous man. Like, I should probably, whatever, and and he says, hey, let's stop making fun of this guy. Like, I think he actually was who he says he was. And Jesus says, hey, cool, you're going to be with me in paradise. Now, can you imagine that guy walking up with, you know, Nicodemus? Uh, If you don't know Nicodemus' story, he was a Pharisee. He knew the law. He knew the book backwards and forwards, had big portions of it memorized. He came to believe that Jesus was the Messiah and he put his faith in him. And so Nicodemus has lived this righteous life as a child of God his whole life. And he shows up to the gates and this thief on the cross who shows up to the gates. And he says to Nicodemus, why should I let you in? And I'm sure he's got a whole laundry list of really great things that he did with his life. And he could start to, to spout them out. But he looks to the thief and he says, hey thief, why don't you go first? And the thief says, that guy on the cross said i could come and if nicodemus has any other answer than that guy on the cross said i can come then he's wrong now i stole that from another preacher but it, but it makes the point that our only source for true life and purpose so this 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 forgiveness that we receive is a gift it's just he said i could get in I, I don't get it. I, don't, I, I can't make the scales balance. I don't know why a good and perfect sacrifice is going to make it possible for me to be able to go in because I know how jacked up I am. and I, uh, It's even worse than I thought it was, but like Jesus is our only source for true life and purpose. And square run of the Christian faith is the work that God has done through Jesus. We're all the way through chapter one, beginning in chapter two, and it's all about the work that Jesus has completed. If you want to build your faith on something, don't build it on what your abilities are and don't build it upon your gifts and don't build it on your talents and don't build it on your resources. Turn all those things over to Jesus and build it all on him. Uh, we're, We're in the middle of chapter two and so far the only thing we've seen a believer do is have love for other Christians and to pray for them, both of which we already know are only possible because God's doing a work in their heart. To know Jesus is a gift from God. To know Jesus is a gift from God. To trust Jesus is a gift from God. To follow Jesus is a gift from God. And one of the results of God enlivening his people is that they do good work according to his plan. For we are, verse 10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God has a plan, and he made good works for us to participate in. That's kind of a mind canon in and of itself. I don't know how he's working all this stuff out, but he's, but he's figuring it out. But what's the work? Right? Okay, he's got a job for me to do. What's, what's the work? What are we, what are we, what are we doing here? There, there's a story I'd like to move us towards closing out of Matthew chapter 9. Jesus is uh, going throughout cities and villages. He's teaching in their synagogues to religious people. He's proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. He's healing every disease and affliction. So he's, he's doing the work that he came to do. And when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And then he said to, the, to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. If we start in chapter two here and we begin to like, realize that everybody apart from God is dead, we can be like, oh man, we should probably just stick away from those guys. They smell. Like If, if, I, if I made it out of there, like, "Whoo! thank you, Jesus. I can move on with my life and I can praise you in glory. But God's looking at the world and saying, this isn't what I, what I want to do, is I want to bring in the harvest. I'm not done crossing enemy lines. I'm not done extending my grace to other people. Like, like when I see the crowds, I have compassion for them. When I see people wandering and hopeless and helpless and and, and without an aim or without a direction, like, like that breaks my heart. I want to shepherd them. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. What's the work? Uh, It's people work. We work hard to journey together because Jesus is paving the way. We were the walking dead, but the life in our heart compels us back to those who are animated, but lifeless. We don't resent the world. We're not superior to the world We do not expect them to walk by the standards that we walk in as followers of Jesus. Nevertheless, we labor diligently side by side with Jesus, guided by the Holy Spirit to introduce them to Jesus and to invite them to follow him. We we are his workmanship, we're his masterpiece created in Christ Jesus for good works. Are we following Jesus into the fields to practice his ways with others? Because Jesus is our only source for true life and purpose. Let's pray together. God, when we look at the math and we try to figure out what we owed and what you paid, we realize how much we're in your debt Our natural inclination is to then immediately get, like, I want to earn it. I want to earn it. I want to earn it. And Lord, we just thank you that it's a gift. God, when I meet you face to face, I I pray that I have no other answer than the guy on the cross said I could come. The guy that walked out of that tomb said I could come. I don't have anything else to cling to. It's not my ability to understand. It's not my good works. It's just... You made the way, and I want to walk in it. Lord, you did that. You're demonstrating your character, and you're inviting us into the work. So wherever we're at, God, if we're, if we're new and, and, and we don't know that we trust you yet, Lord, I pray that you would work on our hearts. Bring us to a place where we can trust you. If we followed you for a long time, we're a little bit stale, God, help us to see the work that you're doing is not about what you're doing in my life. And if we just kind of sat on the bench, God, would you call us into the field? Would you surround us with teammates to labor alongside? Would you guide us and direct us in how we might invite our neighbors to meet and follow you? If... uh, If there's anything in what I've said this morning, God, that is just my own opinion, Lord, I pray that those things would be forgotten, but that your word would stand firm, that you would help uh, us to strip away whatever's excess and to build our lives just on you. We thank you. It's in your name we pray.